Today we're going to be back in the book of Matthew. Our portion this morning uh, was something that I really wrestled with on whether or not uh, to just kind of skim over uh, the remaining chapter to kind of just, or to go a little deeper. And, and I was finding myself, as I was studying, just excited about what the Lord was showing me. And, and so uh, I felt like I, I really wouldn't be able to share all the interesting things that the Lord was showing me if I just skimmed over the chapter. So today we're not going to be tackling a, a big portion of Scripture, but I trust God still uh, to speak to us through uh, the reading and application of his word. And so this morning's text that we'll be covering is actually Matthew chapter 17, verses 9 through 13. Matthew 17, 9 through 13. If you have a Bible with you today, I'd like to encourage you to start making your way there. Uh, If for some reason you forgot your Bible this morning or you don't have one, usually underneath your seat there's some chairs uh, that have Bibles underneath there. Feel free to reach down, grab one, and pull it out so that you can follow along. We do think it's important that you're able to follow along. And we're going to be doing a a little bit of jumping around today, and so it would be good to have something with you uh, if you want to look at the different portions of Scripture uh, that we'll be tackling. Okay? All right. Will you please join with me in standing as we read uh, this morning's text, Matthew chapter 17, verses 9 through 13. Verse 9 begins... Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But, verse 12, I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, and we do pray that you would lead and guide our time in your word this morning. Lord, I pray for just uh, everyone who's here uh, this morning. And just pray that we would be uh, here uh, with an excitement and an anticipation uh, to hear you speak to us, Lord. And I know that you want to speak to us. You have uh, your scriptures just full of so many wonderful truths that we can apply to our lives. And so I hope and pray that today would not just be an academic study where we kind of note some cool things or interesting things, but Lord, that we would make application to our lives and that we would allow you to mold and shape us to change us uh, from the inside out, Lord, just growing us in your, into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray that you would do a wonderful work this morning. We do thank you for your presence here. We ask that your Spirit's leading and guiding continue to be upon us. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys may have a seat. Last week, uh, we took a detour from our verse-by-verse study through the book of Matthew to look at a a very special mom, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so uh, today we're back in the Gospel of Matthew where we left off a couple weeks ago. I wanted to do just a little bit of a review, kind of set the stage as far as context goes. You'll recall... That when we last left, we covered the opening verses of chapter 17. We actually even looked at the last verse of chapter 16 and how uh, a lot of people look at that and suggest that maybe it would be more appropriately placed within chapter 17. But uh, the opening verses, verses 1 through 8, they covered an event in Scripture known as the uh, transfiguration of Jesus Christ. This event, uh, if you recall, it took place up on a high mountainside uh, as Jesus took three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they went up to a mountain and they, uh, to pray. And while they were up on the mountain, Jesus was transfigured before them. Remember that his face shone like the sun. And Moses and Elijah showed up as well. And, and Moses and Elijah, they spoke with Jesus. Uh, we looked at some of the other portions, the other gospel accounts. And they tell us they were actually speaking about his death and all that was going to be coming uh, in the future there in Jerusalem, how he's going to be betrayed. And, uh, and so they were speaking of those things. 
And Peter, uh, along with the other disciples, they were amazed at the sight. Uh, Peter, not wanting to see Moses or Elijah go, he wanted to build these tabernacles for them to stay in so that they could just continue to, to just soak it all in. And, and all that was happening upon that mountain. And we noted in our study that uh, we can sometimes be like that. You know, that we can, uh, we want those mountaintop experiences to never end and, and we want them to last as long as possible. But uh, the problem that we noted was that the Lord is done, was done. You know, the Lord had finished his conversation. Moses and Elijah were departing and taken off and the Lord was coming back to the disciples. And, and when the Lord moves, we need to move as well. And so... Uh, not to take away from the incredible experience that the Lord had shown those disciples. It was indeed awesome, the Mount of Transfiguration. But the Lord still had more that He wanted to do in the lives of these three men. And He wanted to show them another thing uh, as well. Another truth that we find throughout Scripture. And today we're going to point out a, a lesson that these three disciples were going to learn for themselves firsthand. It was a lesson that Moses... Uh, had learned firsthand, and it was a lesson that Elijah had learned firsthand as well. And we're going to look at that today. And so let's look at, again, in our opening verse, verse 9, it says, Now, as they came down from the mountain, we're going to pause there. Here, Jesus and his disciples, they're descending the mountain. Okay? They're leaving behind that mountaintop experience, and, and they're looking to join up with the other disciples at the bottom of the mountain. Now, while up on the mountaintop, they experienced something incredible, that Mount of Transfiguration. The glory of God's Son was revealed. Great prophets of old appeared in Moses and Elijah. The voice of God, the Father, was heard. And now they have to come down from that experience. And as they make their way down the mountain, they'll soon find out that the enemy is waiting for them there at the bottom of the mountain in the form of an arguing multitude and a demon-possessed child. The enemy will do this very often, this thing very... Do this... The enemy will often do this very thing when we experience something special, when we have those spiritual mountaintop moments. Oftentimes, the enemy will be waiting for you when you come down the mountain. Moses had learned this lesson firsthand. Back in Exodus chapter 32, we read of what happened uh, and what waited for Moses at the bottom of one of his mountaintop experiences. If you guys want to turn there, you can. In Exodus chapter 32, I'm just going to kind of review a little bit of what happened. Most of you are probably familiar with the account, but Moses had been on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And the Lord had given to him two tablets of stone that the Lord had written his law upon. And while up on the mountain, Moses experienced a type of intimacy that few have ever experienced. The Lord conversed back and forth with Moses there on top of the mountain. It was an incredible time for Moses. But down at the bottom of the mountain, the enemy was at work. The Lord told Moses in Exodus chapter 32, verses 7 and 8, He says, Go, get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moses had to come down from that mountaintop experience and had to deal with the, the foolishness of Aaron and the Israelites as they attempted to make for themselves a, a new God, uh, molded and shaped from, out of gold uh, that would lead them uh, uh, continuing out of the land of Egypt and into uh, the promised land. Elijah too experienced the attack of the enemy after his mountaintop experience. It was one of the biggest showdowns recorded for us in scripture I believe. Elijah, there in 1 Kings chapter 18, he called out the 450 false prophets of Baal and the 400 false prophets of Asherah. And they ascended up Mount Carmel. And there, Elijah, he openly challenged the prophets of Baal to call down fire from heaven and to see if their God was real, to see if their God was able to answer and I'm sure you guys have read the account before. After hours 
all day really from the morning until the evening sacrifice they danced and they called up unto their lord and they cut themselves with knives and lances and they were it was just a, a horrific scene and it's it's kind of a little comical if you read elijah's kind of he says hey maybe you know you should call out louder or maybe he's taking a rest and you know all these different uh <laughs> jabs that Elijah gives, but, but he's there, and it, it's not until the evening sacrifice that we see uh, Elijah. He then prepares his own bull upon an altar, and, and he soaked it with water, actually three times, just completely drenched the whole entire thing, like it's waterlogged, it's not going to catch on fire, it's, you know, no one would ever do this, right? And, and, and then in a very simple a very powerful prayer, Elijah entreated the Lord and he said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. You guys know what happens, right? God showed up in a big and powerful way, consuming not only the sacrifice, but the stones, the entire altar, everything. All was consumed in the fire that came down from heaven. The scriptures actually say, I like what it says. It says that the the fire licked every bit of water that had been poured out upon the altar and the sacrifice. That idea that it was just dry as dry can be the fire that came down from heaven. And after that, Elijah, he turned, he had those false prophets seized, and and they were later executed. And and it was an incredible victory for the Lord, and an incredible victory for Elijah that day. But Elijah would soon find out that the enemy was at work at the bottom of the mountain. For when he returned from that incredible victory in the Lord from the top of Mount Carmel, he was delivered a message by Queen Jezebel that she had sworn to have him killed the very next day. And so we see the enemy was there waiting for him. Moses had learned this truth. Elijah had learned this truth. And now it was time for Peter and James and John to experience this and to learn this truth firsthand that the enemy will wait for you to come down from your mountaintop experiences and he'll try his best to rob you of all that the Lord has done on the mountaintop. The enemy of our souls, he wants to do all that he can to take away from the victories and the incredible things God does in our lives. And I want to just remind you, kind of put that in your mind, and, and maybe it's not for a time right now, but it's a time for later. You put it on the shelf, you'll be able to grab it later on to encourage you to be mindful that it shouldn't come to you as a surprise. That after nearly every great mountaintop experience with the Lord, the enemy will be there waiting for you in the valley. Now, to some of us, to some of you, you may be thinking, well, that doesn't sound very comforting, or that doesn't sound very good. I don't really like the idea of that, and uh, maybe I kind of like the idea of Peter, and we'll just stay up on the mountaintop the whole time. Why ever come down? But the Lord works, and, and it's important that we need to remember something. We need to remember something that, that really, something the Syrian army learned firsthand as well, back in 1 Kings chapter 20. For in 1 Kings chapter 20, a Syrian king by the name of Ben-Hadad had gathered all his forces together. He had a coalition of some 32 kings with him. And they besieged Samaria, which was under the rule of King Ahab, the king of Israel at that time. And a prophet of the Lord came to King Ahab. And he told them that the Lord was going to deliver him from the hand of Ben-Hadad and his coalition of kings. It's interesting because King Ahab was not a, was not a very good king. Uh, he did some really bad things. Okay? Uh, and, and yet the Lord sent this prophet to say, hey, I'm going to deliver you in this uh, situation. And the Lord did. A group of young leaders went up against the king as they were up, situated high up in a command post. And, and the Syrians were uh, attacked. They had to retreat. They, they, they scattered. They eventually regrouped. And it's interesting, the man of God, the prophet, he came back and told King Ahab, they're going to come back in the spring 
So be ready for them. And sure enough, uh, that's what ends up happening. Uh, it's interesting, though, as you read the account in 1 Kings chapter 20, it tells us that certain servants of the Syrian king, king came to Ben-Hadad. And they explained to him that the reason they had lost was because the Israelites' gods, they were the gods of the hills. And if they would come and attack the Israelites in the plains or down in the valleys, then they would win. Their, their God wouldn't have any power over us. And so Ben-Hadad, when he heard this, he thought, that's great news. And they built up another battle plan. And the next time, the next spring, the Syrians with this new battle plan to avoid the hilltops, to attack in the plains, they established themselves and they were ready for combat. And at that moment, in that spring, a man of God approached King Ahab once again, who along with his men were completely surrounded by the masses of Ben-Hadad's forces. It says that they, they were like two groups of sheep in, in the field, and, the, and the Ben-Hadad's men covered the entire countryside. It was an amazing, lopsided uh, event. And this man of God came, and he, and he said... To King Ahab, thus says the Lord. Because the Syrians have said, The Lord is God of the hills, but He's not God of the valleys. Therefore I will deliver all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And on that day the Syrians learned that God, the God that we serve, He is not only the God of the mountaintops, but He's also the God of the valleys. And so we need to remember that. We need to not be afraid of the enemy that awaits us in the valley. When I say, hey, the enemy is going to be waiting for you in the valley, we can say, amen, that's all right, because our God is the God of the mountains, and He's also the God of the valleys. He is God that reigns over all. Let's look back here at our account in Matthew 17. Verse 9, and it continues as they came down the mountain. Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Jesus commanded his disciples to, to tell no one about the vision that they saw there up on the mountain. And, and we've noted several times in our study of, uh, of the book of Matthew how uh, Jesus was working on a divine timeline. And many occasions he had to ask people not to tell something that happened. He healed someone. He said, don't tell anybody. When uh, the disciples proclaimed an incredible truth, he said, yeah, you're right, but don't tell anybody. He was working upon a divine timeline. He had a master plan. And, and so this is no different. Jesus needed the disciples to keep this to themselves for a season. And I, and I often, as I say, I like to imagine myself in that portion of Scripture and just imagine myself being one of the disciples or being there. And, and I, I imagine that, and I just think to myself, how difficult would that be for the disciples to do? I mean, think about that. They just experienced something supernatural. Okay? They, they saw their master's face shining as bright as the sun. His clothes were becoming as, as white as the light that beamed from his face. They saw Moses and Elijah. They heard the very voice of God calling out. You know, as I picture it in my own mind, I imagine they would be so excited about what they just saw that they'd be bounding down the mountain with excitement, hardly being able to contain themselves just in awe of what they just saw and what they were able to experience. And it's a quite amazing I imagine they couldn't wait until they saw the rest of the disciples to they could share with them the details of what they just took place. This man, you guys missed it. His face was shining like the sun. It was so bright. And Moses and Elijah were there, and, and I, that's how I would be. I know. I, I imagine they would be that way too, like just amped and excited. And well, like when God shows up in a powerful way, we want to tell people about it, right? We get excited about it. And so Jesus here, though, he tells them. Tell the vision to no one. He, he instituted a, a gag order. Okay? The, the, they couldn't say a thing about it. And, and what a bummer for those disciples. I imagine for them it was disappointing to be like, huh, we, we can't tell anybody uh, about that? Uh, incredible sight and incredible vision that we saw. Uh, but I do want to note something here. It's worth, worth noting. I think it's important. And, the, and it's this, that the, the gag order... 
It, it had a termination clause in it. Jesus said, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Once Jesus rose from the dead, they'd be able to tell people about what happened. And, and they probably, you know, as we looked at that, we understand that they really probably didn't understand completely what he meant by that. Uh, they, didn't, they were still not grasping the idea of his death and resurrection. Uh, they did not completely understand his mission. Uh, and it wasn't until after the resurrection that many of them remembered his words and it finally kind of clicked and it dawned upon them like, oh, that's what he was talking about when he said he was going to die and rise again and he was going to be handed over and, and all these types of things. And so, But uh, it's interesting to note that after Jesus did rise from the dead, they did tell about this moment. Peter, he spoke about it in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 18. And John spoke of it when he spoke of how he had beheld the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. In John 1.14, he talks about beholding the glory of Jesus Christ. And so we see that after he had risen from the dead, they did. They went and shared that. They talked about it. They, they um, with excitement, I imagine, shared about that incredible time up on the mountain. And, and I, as I was studying this and just... Considering you know, this, this gag order that had been given to the disciples, it, it made me think of how strange it is. Uh, how strange it is that, that these guys were probably so excited to share about what God had done in their life, but were forbidden from doing so. And how we, we are free to tell others of what God has done in our life, but yet so many of us were, were timid when it comes to speaking about the things of the Lord. I just found it interesting and peculiar, an interesting contrast. These guys were real excited. They wanted to share it, but Jesus said, Nope, here we are, freely. Yes, go tell people about it. And, and we, we hold it in oftentimes. You know, we've been given a wonderful privilege to, to openly share about what the Lord has done in our lives. And we live in a country that allows us to do that. For, you know, back in the United States, that's allowed. We have the freedom of speech, and, and we can for the most part, say what we want to say. Uh, And in Japan, you can freely gather. There's no persecution of religion, and we can openly speak about the Lord. And it's not so in certain areas, but we've been given this privilege. And we've actually been commissioned, in fact, to do that, to tell others about what God has done. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20 says, To go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. I want to encourage you guys this morning to take the opportunities that the Lord has given to you to share with others about what God's done in your life. The, the termination date upon this gag order has come. Jesus has risen from the dead, and now we can boldly share that info with others. And I want to encourage you guys to take advantage of that. These guys were real excited about sharing about the things that God was doing in their life, and I would hope that you would carry some of that excitement with you as well. That you'd be willing and, and excited to talk about what God's done in your life. And be willing to share your testimony. It doesn't have to be a formal testimony. Well, I was saved when... You know, just talking about what God's done. What He's doing. You know, and I, I pray that the Lord would give you an opportunity. I was studying, and I was like, you know what, I just pray. I pray that the Lord give everybody an opportunity this week to share something with someone else about what God's done in their life. And I want to encourage you guys to be looking out for that moment this week. To be in prayer about an opportunity to share about what God's done in your life. Let's continue. Verse 10, it says, And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? The disciples, as they came down the mountain, they asked a, a very reasonable question. Okay? It makes sense It's uh, to ask the question that they asked. Less than a week ago, you guys will recall that Peter had correctly identified Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And now they just saw Elijah, and the one that the scribes say must come first before the Messiah. And so I imagine that they're kind of thinking this through, and they're like, well, you're the Messiah, 
And there's Elijah, he kind of came after you, but why did the scribes say that he's supposed to come before you? And is this what you meant? Is that what the scripture's talking about? That appearance of Elijah? I imagine they're trying to just rectify in their minds, just clarify, how does all these puzzle pieces fit together? And so they're asked the question, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Remember that the the scribes, they were experts in the Old Testament law. And they were well respected in regards to their understanding of the scriptures. And so, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? What within the Old Testament told them so? The prophecy concerning the coming of the prophet Elijah, Elijah is actually spoken of in the very last book of the Old Testament, in the last chapter, in fact, the very last verses of the entire Old Testament tell us of Elijah's coming. Okay? It's found in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. And I'll read it to you. But it's the next book to your left, too, if you're in Matthew. So if you want to turn there, you can. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, it says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. You know, the book of Malachi, it actually uh, speaks of a messenger. Three different times there's a reference to a messenger that would come before the, the great and dreadful day of the Lord, when the Lord would come. And he said that there's going to be a messenger, there's going to be a messenger, there's going to be a messenger. And then finally at the end it says... The messenger is going to be Elijah. And so as we look at that, and that is why the scribes believe that Elijah must come first before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And so we see the scribes were on point. They were right to say that Elijah had to come first because the scriptures clearly teach teach us that. However, the great and dreadful day of the Lord, it speaks of, of when God will come and, and destroy all who do wickedly. And Malachi tells us that. And they will divide between those who serve God and those do not, that do not serve Him. And, and I believe this to be speaking of the second coming of the Lord, when He will come as a conquering king upon a white horse, as we read about it in the book of Revelation. In Jesus' first coming, he's not portrayed as a conquering king, but he's more so as a, as a suffering servant who rides not upon a white horse, a, a stallion, but he rides humbly upon a donkey. The scribes didn't know that, that the coming of the Messiah would come in, in two different points of history. That there would be a first coming and that there would be a second coming. The first advent and the second advent. And so we realize that when they would look at scriptures regarding the Messiah and the coming of the Lord, they lumped it all together like all this is going to happen all at one time. And we can't blame them for that necessarily. As they studied the scriptures, it could easily come to that point. And so they believed that uh, this is that before the excuse me, they believed that before the Messiah could come, Elijah had to come first. And this is something that the Jews still believe in today. They don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so they are still waiting for Elijah to come. In fact, you know, if you ever participate in a Jewish Passover meal, they usually will set a, a setting for Elijah. They'll have a chair there for Elijah. They'll even, sometimes they'll pour a cup. And they'll even usually leave the door open for Elijah to come in, just anticipating and expecting and hoping that Elijah will come. They're still waiting for him today. Let's continue. Verse 11, Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. Jesus, he he starts out his answer by affirming to the disciples that indeed Elijah will come first and he will restore all things. That idea of the restoration of all things is that uh, 
restoring the worship of God there in Jerusalem and uh, just the hearts of the children being turned towards the Father, the idea of the Israelites as a nation returning to their forefathers of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Jacob. And so that's the idea of the restoration that will take place. And and Jesus indicated that, that there is a yet future appearance of the prophet Elijah, where all things will be restored. And so we know that since all things have still not yet been restored, we must believe that this is still a future event even for us today. And, And I do believe the future description of Elijah's coming is told to us within the scriptures in the book of Revelation. And so... Uh, I want to take a moment, and we're going to go there, but I do want to just give this disclaimer. Okay? We cannot be sure. We cannot say 100% for sure, but I would like to take a look at Revelation chapter 11 this morning and suggest to you that it speaks, Revelation chapter 11 speaks about the fulfillment of what I believe Jesus is talking about in the coming of Elijah. And so if you want to turn to Revelation chapter 11, the very last book uh, in your Bibles, Revelation chapter 11. And I'd like to read verses 3 through 6 as there's a description of two witnesses before the Lord. Revelation chapter 11, verse 3 through 6. It says, And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire." Although these two witnesses are unnamed, many believe, and so do I, that one of these two witnesses will be Elijah. Nowhere in Scripture are we specifically told that the actual fulfillment of Elijah's coming before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And so we are left to, to speculate. We don't ever see, oh, it's going to happen when this happens, and we're clearly told. And so... As we look to scriptures and we look for evidence of that second coming, uh, not the second coming of Jesus, but the a reappearing of Elijah, there's nowhere specifically where he's mentioned. And so we have to kind of look at clues. And so as we look at the clues that are given to us, I think that Elijah being the identity of one of these two witnesses it is very difficult to combat from scripture. Okay. If you look at it from a scriptural point of view, you look at all the evidence, it's hard to go against it. And we want to look at, and I want to lay out for you some of these clues as to why many believe Elijah to be one of these two witnesses. First off, we do know that for sure, Elijah is going to come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord when Jesus Christ returns. And so since Revelation is the book that gives us the most details of what it will be like when Christ returns, it would leave, uh, lead us to believe that we ought to be able to find Elijah or some sort of ministry of Elijah found within the book of Revelation when it speaks of the coming of Jesus Christ and the great and dreadful day of the Lord when he comes um, as a conquering king. And so it would make sense to look for clues within the book of Revelation. Now, as we look at the ministry of these two witnesses, first and foremost, the thing I want to point out is they were prophets. Okay? Elijah, he was a prophet. Okay? One of the most famous ones in Israel. It tells us that they will prophesy for 1,260 days. Okay? Roughly about three and a half years. They will prophesy. And we're told that these individuals will have the power to perform miracles. And so we look at the life of Elijah, and we again note that Elijah was known for his great miracles that he had performed during his time on earth. During the witnesses' ministry, it tells us, this is an interesting one, it tells us in verse 6 that they will have the power to shut up heaven so that it will not rain while they prophesy. And so for three and a half years, it will not rain. 
Interestingly enough, that was one of the exact miracles that Elijah did. Okay, when he caused it not to rain for three and a half years in the land of Israel. What else were we told about these witnesses? Well, it seems that they have the power to shoot out fire from their mouth. That's pretty cool. But anyways, nowhere in Scripture do we read Elijah having the power to shoot fire out of his mouth. But I do want to let you know that there is a lot of association with fire when it comes to the ministry of Elijah while he was here on earth. If you consider some of the events of the life in the life of Elijah, we already noted in our study today that Elijah called down fire from heaven on top of Mount Carmel when he challenged the prophets of Baal. He also called down fire from heaven two other times when captains and groups of 50 men were sent to take him to King Ahaziah. And they said, oh, man of God. And he says, well, if I'm a man of God, fire is going to come down on you right now. And they were taken out as they were trying to take him to King Ahaziah. Lastly, we know that Elijah, he, he never died, but was one day taken by a chariot of fire that had horses of fire up into a whirlwind into heaven. And so we see, although he didn't speak fire from his mouth, he couldn't do that, we do see a great association of fire with the ministry of Elijah. Also, in regards to him not actually dying, some speculate uh, that because of Hebrews 9, verse 27, that says that it's appointed to men for men to die once, but after this the judgment, that Elijah is one of the witnesses that will die because he's one of the few people mentioned in Scripture that have not died, okay, that never died. Um, the, idea, the idea being that if a man is only supposed to die once, and these witnesses die, if you continue to read, read along, they die. They're killed. And so the idea there is that if they're supposed to die, and man's only supposed to die once, that the witnesses would be someone that hasn't previously died. Okay? I don't necessarily agree with the interpretation of, uh, that interpretation of Hebrews 9.27, but still, as I said, uh, some use that as further indicators that Elijah is one of the two witnesses. Last of all, I think it's important to note just that the witnesses will be there to testify of Jesus and God's plan for the nation of Israel. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 39, that the scriptures testify of him. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus shared with the two men how Moses and all the prophets spoke of the things concerning him. And in Luke 24, verse 44, Jesus spoke to the disciples of how all things written about him in the law and the prophets had to be fulfilled. I think that it's safe to assume that the witnesses will be sharing these same truths from the law and the prophets. On the Mount of Transfiguration, when Moses and Elijah appeared, many believe that they appeared because they represented the law and the prophets. Okay? A, a complete picture of the Old Testament, the idea that Jesus had come and had fulfilled all that was required of him from the Old Testament. And so we had pictured there Moses and Elijah, representation of the law and the prophets, the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures. And so since they will witness, excuse me, since the witnesses will be testifying of God's plan, it, it just makes sense to use someone that is clearly associated with the law and the prophets like Elijah. Okay? So those, those are some of the evidences. Okay? Now, we can't say for sure, like I said, but I think it's hard to suggest anyone else from a scriptural point of view. Now, as for the identity of the other man, again, we can't say for sure that even one of them is going to be Elijah, but if we were to look at the clues again, I think there is strong evidence that Moses could be the other witness. Some people don't like using Moses as the identity of the other witness because uh, Moses died. And so those that use the Hebrews 9.27 about men only dying once, they use that as a veto. Nope, it can't be Moses because he already died. So some people say maybe Enoch. If you write, read in Genesis, uh, there's a man by the name of Enoch. He walked with the Lord and then he was no more. He just was caught up. And so people say, oh, maybe it's him. But um, if you look at Hebrews 9.27, I believe it's, it's really not speaking in regards to a, an absolute, but more of a general rule that man is appointed to die once. Because 
To say that all men only die once would go against the scriptures that clearly teach us that some people were risen from the dead. Okay? Elijah brought back to life the son of the widow that he stayed with. Jesus brought back to life Lazarus, as well as the daughter of Jairus. Peter brought back to life Tabitha, uh, or Tabitha, uh, Dorcas, uh, as she's known as as well. And, and nowhere in Scripture or in history do we hear of these people living on forever, or, or them being miraculously caught up into heaven without dying. And, and so I believe it's safe to assume that they, they went on to live what we would expect to be a, a normal life, and they probably died again of, of natural causes later on in life. And so... You know, to try and say that Hebrews 9.27 automatically vetoes Moses because he died doesn't hold a, a whole lot of strength uh, because other people in Scripture, uh, they died more than once. And so I think Hebrews 9.27, it, it speaks against the idea of, of reincarnation, that we're going to come back and, you know, we're just going to die once and then we're going to be before the Lord uh, type of thing. And for some very, very special people, they, they t- tasted death and miraculously were brought back to life. And so that, that, those are the, the uh, exceptions. Thank you. I was going to say examples was on my lips, but exceptions is the word I wanted. Thank you. Those are the exceptions. And so as we look at this, uh, Elijah, uh, excuse me, because of this evidence, I don't think that you can automatically veto motives. And so if you look evidence, look at the evidence, we see that the witnesses, they'll also have the power to turn water into blood. That is something that Moses did. Okay? As well as they'll have the ability to strike the earth with all plagues. Again, something that Moses was associated with when he confronted Pharaoh in Egypt. Also, as we noted earlier, Moses and Elijah, they, they represent the law and the prophets. Okay? They represent an entirety of the Old Testament. The very words that I believe that the two witnesses will be declaring and testifying of and explaining how Jesus Christ was the Messiah and how all of this worked together. And they would use the Old Testament scriptures to point that out. And it just makes sense to me that it would be someone that represents the law and the prophets. Someone like Moses and Elijah. And as we look at the activities that they do. They are activities that are associated with these two men. Okay. That was a pretty big rabbit trail. Okay, I I do admit that. But I I thought it was one worth venturing down to to understand what Jesus was talking about in regards to Elijah's future coming. Okay? Because it talks about, you know, oh, Elijah's supposed to come and, and they had an understanding and I wanted to make sure that we also had an understanding of what that meant. Okay, that there is a future uh, application of Elijah going to come. And, it, and so it's important. And I think that it's exciting to consider you know, unfulfilled prophecy in light of the time that we live in today. You know, I believe uh, that it's important because we get to know and trust that God's word is going to come to pass. Okay? That we can trust it. Even, even those prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled, we can trust in God's word that in God's perfect timing, they too will come to pass. And so that's why it's exciting to look at some of these unfulfilled prophecies and try and figure out how's this going to work and how's it going to play out. And it's exciting. I hope it's exciting to me. I was getting all into it and I thought I'm going way rabbit trail, but I liked it. And I hope you guys got a little something out of it as well. I hope it wasn't just for me. But uh, uh, just a excitement. To know that before us, we still have things that are yet to be to unfold. And it's exciting to look at that and say, man, God's promises, man, we can trust them. God's word, it's going to come to pass. It's going to come true. And it's exciting to consider that. Well, let's continue. Verse 12, all the way back into Matthew. Matthew chapter 17, uh, verse 12, it says, But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Here Jesus throws out something for the disciples to consider in regards to Elijah's coming. He started out in verse 11 by saying, Yep, indeed, Elijah's going to be coming, indicating a future visitation. But here he proclaims that Elijah had come already. And they did not know him and did to him whatever they wished. 
Are you confused yet? Okay. I imagine for the disciples, huh? What, what do you mean? We have here what I believe to be a, a double fulfillment of prophecy, or some might like to call it a partial fulfillment of prophecy. In Luke chapter 1, an angel of the Lord appeared to Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, and announced that he and his wife were going to have a son in their old age, that they were to name him John. And the angel told Zacharias in verse 17 of Luke chapter 1 that John would go before him, indicating the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The angel quoted part of the prophecy of Malachi that spoke of Elijah turning the hearts of the fathers to the children. Interestingly enough, though, if you, when John the Baptist was out in the desert and he was baptizing people and he was warning people to repent for the kingdom of heaven was at hand, that the Pharisees sent some people to ask John very pointedly. They asked him, are you the Christ? And, or are you Elijah? Or are you the prophet to come? And, and John answered, he said, no. John chapter 1, verse 21. And so we see that John the Baptist was not Elijah in the flesh. Okay? But he did come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Jesus, earlier in the book of Matthew, he even declared regarding John the Baptist, all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. Matthew chapter 11, verses 13 and 14. If you're willing to receive it, John the Baptist was Elijah, but at the same time, Elijah is still yet to come. And so we see a, a double fulfillment, okay? or, or a, a type the scriptures talk about different types and shadows of things to come. And we see that John the Baptist, he, he came in the power, spirit and power of Elijah. He was a, a forerunner like that of Elijah. And so he, uh, John was a forerunner for the first coming of the Messiah. Elijah will be the forerunner for the second coming of the Messiah. When Jesus described how they had treated uh, John the Baptist or, or Elijah that was to come, the disciples, they were able to discern that he was speaking of John uh, the Baptist. Remember, we covered what happened to John the Baptist as Herod ordered him to be beheaded uh, at the request of uh, Herodias's daughter, a uh, very terrible thing that happened to John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11. And so uh, they recognized, oh, he's speaking about John the Baptist. Uh, you know, as we look at this, I don't know about you, but I, I get excited. I get excited when I read about fulfilled prophecies within Scripture. I like to think of unfulfilled prophecies, but I, I, I think prophecy in general is just exciting to think about. And as we come across different portions of Scripture that show us fulfilled script prophecy, uh, it's exciting to see words that were foretold hundreds of years in advance come to fruition. You know, the Bible is filled with prophecy. Some estimate it to be at least a quarter of the Bible speaks about prophecy. You know, and I think sometimes we shy away from it. Ooh, prophecy, I don't really want to get into that. Or, you're missing a whole lot of the Bible if you don't want to get into prophecy. Okay? Prophecy is exciting. Okay? And as we look at it, it's exciting to think of these things. Uh, you know, the Bible, it, it stands apart from all other historical books or documents in that the prophecy and the accuracy of the prophecy contained within this book is unmatched. You know, it's one of the things that separates it and, and points us to say, how, how can this not be a divinely inspired book? It gives names of people that will come in hundreds of years in advance and will be kings and rulers and they're going to do and say things and it happened just like it said. That's amazing. And as we consider prophecies that pertain to the second coming of Jesus Christ, as we looked at today in regards to the coming of Elijah, I can't help but look forward with anticipation to those days. And I, it gets exciting. You know, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I want to share these last verses with you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through 18, it tells us this. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, 
with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then, he, then we, excuse me, who are alive and remain shall be caught up. That, that word caught up is where we get the word raptured from. Okay? Uh, some people say, oh, that word's not even in the Bible. Well, because it's, it's actually the Latin part of the Bible. So if you read Latin, you, the Latin Bible, it would be in your Bible. But most of us don't. Okay? Uh, that raptured together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Verse 18 says, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. You know, unlike, unlike the Jews who are still waiting for and looking for Elijah, we don't look for or wait for anyone else but Jesus Christ. We look forward to that day when He comes in the clouds and with the trumpet of God and He calls us up to be with Him always, forever, for eternity. And I say, Maranatha, Lord, come soon. It's exciting to think and to realize that that's what we get to look forward to. And that is what awaits us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this morning and the uh, time in Your Word. And Lord, as we, we did look, go through some different rabbit trails and we jumped all over in different portions of Scripture, I pray that everyone here was ministered to and everyone here was given something to, to take home, to chew upon, to meditate upon, Lord, to, to grow in, to apply to their lives. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the incredible accuracy of the prophecy contained within it. Lord, it, it's undeniable that your hand uh, was upon this book as you inspired men to pen this book. Lord, it is an incredible thing to consider the prophecy within it, Lord. And it's exciting. It's exciting to know that your word will come to pass that the truths contained within it are sure, they're amen, we can rely upon them. Lord, and as we consider some of those unfulfilled prophecies yet to come, Lord, we look forward to those days when you call us home. Lord, as I, as I consider, as we look at just the in, in end times timeline, Lord, I believe the next event is the rapture. Lord, and we're just waiting for you. We're looking for you. We're not waiting for Elijah. We're not looking for an antichrist. We're not looking for the beast or, or any of those things. We're not going to be around during those times, I don't believe. And, and so, Father, may our focus be upon you. May we be excited about what you're doing in our lives. And may we be bold to share that with other people. Lord, thank you for this morning and thank you for this body and I pray that you would bless them and continue to minister to their hearts as they go their ways. Thank you, and, and we just want to praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.